This is Guns and Butter. When I was in Norway, one of the Norwegian politicians sat next to me at a dinner and said, you know, uh, there's one good thing that President Obama has done that we never anticipated in Europe. He's shown the Europeans that we can never depend upon America again. There's no president, no matter how good he sounds, no matter what he promises, we're uh, never again going to believe the patter talk of an American president. Mr. Obama has cured us. He has turned out to be our nightmare. Uh, our problem is what to do about the American people that don't realize this nightmare that they've created, this uh, smooth-talking American Tony Blair in the White House. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Guns, Finance, and Butter. Finance is the new mode of warfare. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, The Myth of Aid, and Global Fracture, The New International Economic Order. Today we discuss the crisis of the economy in the United States, the jobless recovery, the debt ceiling debate, default, and China. We also talk about the economic crisis in Europe and financial warfare against Greece. Michael Hudson, welcome. Thank you very much, Bonnie. Michael, I read in the newspapers that the Great Recession, so-called, has long since ended, but that unemployment remains stubbornly high, with only a measly 18,000 jobs created in June. I believe the term that was coined some time ago is a jobless recovery. What is a jobless recovery? Uh, we call that a depression. Uh, and the economy is going worse and worse. Uh, that's why today the stock market uh, is down 160 points. The financial sector realizes that the game is over. The uh, financial interests from America to Greece, Ireland, and Europe are all insisting that governments pay off uh, the bad bank loans that they've taken onto their balance sheet by increasing taxes and pushing the economy into a depression. Uh, in the United States, President Obama has bought the idea that the only way of getting recovery is to cut wages by about 30 percent. Uh, and he's doing that in two ways. Uh, at the Federal Reserve, he's uh, empowered the uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Bernanke to uh, lower interest rates, flood the economy with money, QE2, uh, $600 billion that's flown out of the country, to push the dollar down. When you push the dollar down, the main uh, victims are consumers because uh, uh, Oil prices and raw materials prices and machinery prices and shipping all have a common uh, cost. When you're devaluing a currency, what you're devaluing really is the price of labor uh, because all the other costs are globally uh, fixed. So uh, Obama believes that 
reducing uh, the price of American labor in foreign exchange is going to make the economy more competitive. Uh, at the Treasury Department, uh, you're now seeing him uh, argue over how to reduce the uh, uh, budget deficit. And uh, he is uh, doing what nobody really imagined uh, the change was possible when he was elected president. He's actually moved to the right of Michelle Bachmann. Uh, and the Republican Party. Uh, Michelle Bachman on uh, television recently has pointed out that she was against TARP, uh, the giveaway to the uh, Wall Street interests. Uh, I remember the very last uh, presidential debate between uh, Mr. Obama and Mr. McCain. It was on a Friday night. And uh, McCain had just gone back uh, to Washington to uh, say that he supported the bailout of the banks. And in the debate, everybody avoided even discussing the bailout. Uh, and then later, Mr. Obama said that uh, in order for there to be a recovery, uh, the banks had to avoid losing a single penny. And in fact, uh, what's happened today was all made pretty clear uh, even before Mr. Obama was elected by the uh, appointees uh, he made, uh, the sort of right-wing economic appointees, Tim Geithner, uh, the bank lobbyist, is Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Larry Summers, the financial pusher of bank deregulation and uh, getting rid of the Glass-Steagall Act uh, as his uh, chief advisor, and of course, Rahm, who is uh, pushing the uh, interests. So uh, the Obama administration capped the uh, Bush administration by giving $13 trillion of giveaway to the to the banking sector. Now, all of this has pushed the government way into deficit. And the question is, how do you get the money back? Uh, people would have thought before Mr. Obama was elected that he'd get the budget back in balance. By now, uh, beginning to uh, reintroduce progressive taxation by uh, taxing wealth and by using uh, the taxes on finance and uh, the very rich to fund what he'd promised, uh, a public option in the public health program and uh, protecting Social Security. Uh, over the weekend, he's come out against this. Uh, he wants to lower Social Security, uh, to cut back Medicare, cut back Medicaid, especially the uh, payments uh, to the poor. And you realize that now, if you look back on that last debate he had with uh, John McCain before the election in 2008, he and McCain were bidding for the campaign contributions uh, that are what politicians do. And the way that you get campaign contributions, if you're any politician, is you deliver your constituency to your campaign contributors. The biggest campaign contributors are Wall Street and uh, the real estate sector. And uh, these are the contributors that the Democrats and the Republicans are all vying for. And indeed, uh, Mr. Obama's main contributors were these large Wall Street interests. And those are the people that he's going uh, for now. And he's delivering his constituency namely the people who voted Democratic, and he's delivering them to Wall Street, and he's showing uh, his philosophy by uh, saying, well, we have to make sure that bankers don't lose money, employees lose money. Now, over the weekend, yesterday in the New York Times, uh, there was an interview with the head of the FDIC, Sheila Baer, whose five-year term just expired last week. Now that it's expired, 
she can begin to tell the stories. And uh, she told the story of how one meeting with uh, Obama after another, he'd make promises to her, promises that he would uh, try to prevent the uh, mortgage crime that was occurring, to prevent the fraudulent subprime mortgages, to make a bank regulation, to prevent criminal activities. She said in every case, uh, she'd go to uh, his uh, big speeches, and an hour before the speech, she'd be given a copy of it, and he took out everything that he promised her. And uh, uh, it was all rewritten by uh, the big bank contributors. The important thing is that now Ms. Baer is saying, look, people said that uh, there would have been a meltdown if you didn't give uh, all this $13 trillion to Citibank, to AIG, and to uh, Goldman Sachs. But the fact is that we at the FDIC uh, wound down Washington Mutual. Our business is winding down bad banks. Citibank could have gone under and all the other banks, and the depositors wouldn't have lost. They would have all been insured because there were plenty of bank assets. There weren't enough assets in Citibank and AIG to pay the gamblers and the big players, uh, the wealthiest 1%. And uh, she said in every case, uh, they were told the wealthiest 1% can't afford to lose a penny. So that's when Mr. Obama said, okay, to uh, make these gains to save the financial sector from losing money, we have to make employees uh, pay. We have to make them pay through more Social Security taxes instead of uh, uh, making the uh, higher brackets pay. We have to pay by cutting back Medicare. We uh, can't uh, charge the uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, by actually bargaining with them like they do in Canada. We have to let them set the prices with no argument. And he's sort of made an accommodation with the Republicans uh, to solve the problem. The problem is, how can he, Mr. Obama, who's pledged to uh, represent uh, his constituency and the Democrats, how can he move way to the right of where George Bush was at? Well, the only way he could do this would be for the Republicans to move even further to the right. So the Republicans have accommodated Mr. Obama by pushing the crazy wing of their party, the Tea Parties, uh, Michelle Bachman, the Alaskan governor, uh, Palin, and uh, they've come with such a crazy, intransigent, right-wing attitude that now Mr. Obama can move way to the right and... Uh, essentially still triangulate and say, look, I'm better than these guys are. And he's hoping that people will vote for him just because he's not as bad as the Republican Tea Partyists. Well, the reality, of course, is that there are not going to be many people showing up to vote uh, on the Democratic side, and uh, it's quite possible the Republicans would get in. And the one silver lining for the Republicans winning in 2012 would be at that point the Democratic Congress would uh, find its backbone again once it's in opposition, and would say no to uh, the Republicans trying to push the policy that Mr. Obama is uh, now trying to push. Well, you asked about the economy. The economy is going under because uh, Wall Street and uh, investors realize that uh, it's a done deal, that Mr. Obama is going to succeed in pushing the economy much further into a depression. Uh, we need a depression in order to cut living standards and labor by 30%. We need a depression in order just to lower the wages of America and to have an excuse. Of course, a depression is going to make the budget deficit even larger. 
and the solution to the depression has already been written up just like the invasion of Iraq was all written up before 9-11. The solution is going to be that the government is going to sell off its land, whatever is in the public domain. The American government is going to look just like Greece and just like uh, uh, Ireland. They're going to be told the states can't pay. There is no federal uh, revenue to share with Minnesota or Wisconsin or the city of Chicago, they're going to have to sell off their roads, sell off their streets, sell off their infrastructure, sell off uh, their public utilities, sell off their bus lines. Uh, the government will sell whatever it has, uh, the postal service, to essentially buyers who will now borrow the money from the banks, making a huge new market for banks and investment bankers, in uh, privatizing and cutting up what used to be the public domain and turning it over to the uh, wealthiest 10% uh, of the economy. So people realize, yes, the class war is back in business. We're going into a depression. We'll buy all, back all these stocks after they go. But meanwhile, the game's over. Let's grab what we can and uh, just uh, bail out. And that's uh, what's happening now. What is your assessment of the current debate in Washington concerning the raising of the debt ceiling? This debate seems to be taking place between the Obama administration and the Republicans without much input from Democrats. It's a good cop, bad cop deal, uh, a charade that they're both playing. The Republicans are playing the role of the bad cop, saying you have to uh, not raise taxes on anybody, no progressive income tax at all, uh, no closing of the tax loopholes, uh, not even a prosecution for income tax fraud. And by the way, we can get a lot of money if we just let give a tax holiday to all of the uh, companies and the individuals that have been uh, keeping their money offshore. Let's uh, just uh, free wealthy people from taxes uh, altogether, and that will help recover. So they're being sort of the bad cop. So Obama can pretend to be the good cop, and uh, say, hey, boys, let me at least do something. You know, I'm willing to cut back Social Security. I'm willing to uh, take over, really, what was the George Bush program. Uh, but you have to let me uh, get a little bit of revenue somewhere. And at the very end, the Republicans will say, oh, okay, uh, so you can throw us in the uh, uh, briar patch. And they'll give something, and they'll essentially get their program. And Obama will have sold out his constituency. Now, the question is, what will the Democrats do? They don't know what to do. The politicians I talk to say, uh, nobody's going to challenge Mr. Obama in 2012. He has his constituency pretty much locked up in the Democratic Party. So uh, they can't really uh, run against him. He's put as the leadership in Congress, he's promoted all of the uh, worst of the blue dog Democrats. Uh, fortunately, most of them were the ones who lost their office in uh, the last election. But essentially, we're still living with the uh, consequences of uh, Rahm Emanuel, who said a crisis is too good to waste. Let's uh, use this to really lock in our uh, pro-Wall Street program. If there's any group that's to the right of the Republican Party, it's the Democratic Leadership Committee. The Clintons, the Roms, the Clinton manager who was appointed to the Simpson-Bowles Commission, Erskine Bowles. So what uh, Mr. Obama is doing is really pushing forth now the recommendations of the Simpson-Bowles Commission that uh, he'd appointed right after he was elected, but before he took office. So he's now says that, okay, he's going to go with this bipartisan commission, and the Republicans will uh, pretend 
to say, well, we really wanted to get the deal done. Uh, we've got a lot. And they'll go along with what really is a Republican program. What can the Democrats do? They, they're stymied. Now, Obama wants to cut $4 trillion out of the budget, while the Republican leader, Boehner, only wants a $2.4 trillion cut. I've also read that it was Obama, not the Republicans, who proposed putting Social Security cuts on the table. Why would Obama be proposing much larger cuts than the Republicans? For two reasons. Number one, he can get away with it. No Republican administration could ever have got away with cutting Social Security. That is the most basic uh, income protection program that Americans have, and it was sold as saying, look, uh, this is not a social welfare program, it's not a tax, this is money that you've put in. In order to double-cross his constituency, only a Democrat could do it. And only a Democrat posing as a left-winger could really pull the double-cross that Mr. Obama is, uh, is posing. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Guns, Finance, and Butter. Finance is the new mode of warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. China has warned the U.S., quote, do not default. What would be the implications and ramifications of a U.S. default? Would a U.S. default put the entire global banking system into crisis? Nothing would happen at all. Everybody knows there's not going to be a default. Uh, China uh, would not lose a cent on this. China would say, okay, if you can't pay us uh, the Treasury bills, that's okay. There's a lot of American investment in China. We'll just take uh, possession of it at, uh, uh, at its book value. They wouldn't mind that uh, very much. Uh, a default would mean that uh, the dollar would not be acceptable again until the United States paid. And again, there's not going to be a default. But if there were, uh, America would have no way of paying for its military bases anymore. America would be unable to extend the war. Mr. Obama couldn't be the war president. I mean, even before he took office, he won the Nobel War Prize. So he knew that he was going to escalate wherever he could. That's what the war prize is given for. That's why it was given to Kissinger and to other people who go to war. And uh, he wouldn't be able to extend the war into Libya. He wouldn't be able to extend it to the other Near East. He wouldn't be able to uh, surround Russia with more nuclear weapons. He wouldn't be able to uh, attack devices in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He wouldn't be able to follow his war, to become the war president that he set out to be. Would a U.S. default send interest rates soaring? And if so, what would be the economic effect? An interest rate wouldn't matter if you default. I mean, if you tell me, uh, I can rent you an IOU, but you're not going to collect, I'll give you 20%. Uh, what does it matter if you default? No, it wouldn't send interest rates soaring at all. It wouldn't have any effect at all. This is, this is all a just-pretend uh, argument to uh, create the crisis, to give Mr. Obama the opportunity to do what politicians do, to sell out his constituency to his campaign contributors on Wall Street. He's going to go down as a Hubert Hoover, or rather a Warren Harding, probably. He's going to go down as a man who brought on the depression that the Republicans never could have gotten away with. Only a Democrat posing as a left-winger could support the anti-labor anti-wage, pro-Wall Street policies that uh, his advisors have been pressing. And there again, that came out in the uh, New York Times interview with uh, Sheila Baer. 
I see. So this is a charade put on for public uh, consumption, the business of a possible uh, debt default. It's to uh, create the illusion of a crisis. Uh, no politician or Wall Street really likes a crisis. But what they do like is the illusion of a crisis to create a pretense for introducing a solution to the crisis that actually makes fortunes for them all. And uh, the way in which uh, Obama resolves the non-crisis of the budget limit is going to make fortunes for Wall Street and impoverish the population for the next decade. I see. So this is a way of getting away with all of this. Yes. I, I was going to ask you if there are elements within the U.S. establishment who would actually want a default, but it sounds to me like it's just a charade. It's a charade. Nobody wants to default. Uh, the safest investment there is are treasury bills. America's whole international position uh, would go. The whole basis of American diplomacy and, and military power is the ability to write IOUs that it never intends to pay. I mean, America, you could say America defaulted back in August of 1971 when it closed the gold window. What can China do with its treasury bonds already? Uh, the Americans will be glad to give them another treasury bond with a new maturity, but it won't let China buy uh, oil companies or filling stations or anything else. It won't let them buy industrial companies or technology companies or technology exports. Uh, I mean, it's already, in effect, the whole international monetary system based on the dollar has been in default for the last 30 years. Is the U.S. in an economic war with China? No. Uh, not really a war. Uh, there's a, a jockeying for position, but there's no economic war. I've never heard any anti-American expression whatsoever in China. Only on uh, MSNBC do I hear China bashing, and I guess from Paul Krugman I hear it. Uh, but even when Paul Krugman goes to China, he makes a million dollars, you know, by giving speeches. But uh, there's, there's no uh, real warfare. Dr. Hudson, let's talk a bit now about Europe, starting with Greece. Uh, you have written that the Greek economy will not end up with the proceeds of any European Central Bank bailout. The banks will get the money. Could you explain that? That's right. The condition of the loans that the EU and the IMF are making to Greece is that all of the money has to be paid out to uh, bondholders of these banks, mainly in France and in Germany. Uh, Angela Merkel in Germany uh, said that, wait a minute, uh, this isn't uh, what the free market's supposed to be all about. If they make a bad loan, the bondholders can be wiped out. Uh, the depositors are protected, but not the bondholders. This is exactly what Sheila Baer said uh, in her uh, New York Times interview. But the bank said, look, uh, the bondholders have to be paid first, uh, the domestic economy later, and they've corrupted, basically, the socialist government in Greece. Now, this returns us to what we were talking about at the beginning of this show. You have in Greece the uh, socialist government, the uh, Premier uh, Papandreou is head of the Socialist International, the Second International. He's uh, pushing for the austerity program and the uh, bank bailouts that will uh, hopelessly indebt uh, Greece and force it to sell off uh, much of its economy. The conservatives are opposing this. Just like uh, Michelle Bachman here was saying she was opposing uh, TARP and the bank bailouts, the conservatives in Greece and actually throughout Europe are to the left 
of the socialist parties. The same thing happens in Britain with the British Labour Party being on the ultra-right for privatization, privatizing the railroads and other things that even Margaret Thatcher uh, and the conservatives couldn't do. Uh, in Iceland, it's the uh, social democrats that were pushing for uh, bailing out the banks uh, that the conservative parties and the Icelandic population were against. Same thing in Ireland. All over Europe, the socialists are now on the right wing of the political spectrum. Now that politics is all about finance. And the fact is that finance has nothing to do with the uh, right or the left wing of the political spectrum. It spans the whole spectrum. And the terminology and the, the political concepts that existed a century ago when the social democratic and the uh, labor parties were being formed were basically concerned with employer-employee relations, uh, labor unionization vis-a-vis -vis heavy industry. That's not the case today. Today you have a war of finance, not only against uh, consumers and employees, but against industry. You have industries being financialized. That's what they uh, talk about in business schools. In fact, Bob Locke and others are coming out with a good book by Zed Books uh, uh, in the fall all about uh, how this management philosophy is disabling economies. Management philosophy, financialization, has also disabled socialist politics and left-wing politics. Uh, you don't hear very much at all in America, uh, either in the socialist parties, the democratic parties, or in Europe about financial issues and economic issues. It's about cultural issues, minorities, uh, sexual equality, but it's not about uh, the economic issues. So almost without anybody preparing a political alternative, you've had a transformation of what began as an economic democracy into a financial oligarchy. This is going to be the main problem for the next century, how to cope with the emerging financial oligarchy that has been empowered by the financial bubble and most of all by the bailout. When Bush and Obama gave $13 trillion to Wall Street's managers, they've empowered a whole century of ruling class people, much as the 19th century railroad barons were uh, empowered by giving them uh, the western lands and uh, all the money for the railroads, uh, and much of the great uh, land barons and real estate uh, interests were created in much of the third world. So you've created a rentier oligarchy that is exactly the opposite of everything that was expected at the early uh, 19th century and into the 1930s. In the middle of the Great Depression in 1936, Keynes wrote his general theory of employment uh, interest, and uh, his last chapter called for euthanasia of the rentier. Well, what we have now instead of the euthanasia of the rentier is the euthanasia of uh, the employees, the euthanasia of industry, the euthanasia of entire economies in order to siphon off uh, rent extraction and interest and financial fees to the very top of an economy. And nothing like this has really occurred in Western civilization uh, since the conquest of Europe uh, a thousand years ago. Uh, it did occur in the Roman Empire when the creditors took over. And we all know what happened to that. Uh, we had a dark age, and uh, you talked about uh, recession. Well, we're not only moving into a depression, but the question is, is the depression going to keep on going? And uh, what kind of uh, a society are we going to have if we have the kind of tax shift off wealth onto employees, onto labor, onto industry, 
onto the cities uh, and privatization, meaning a sell-off and uh, sort of pre-bankruptcy sale uh, on credit and uh, essentially an oligarchy emerging. That's what nobody's talking on either end of the political spectrum. Will the IMF and EU bailout for Greece lead to another default? Yes. There is no conceivable way in which Greece can pay the money that's being demanded. Uh, the Financial Times of London has been very clear on this for the last uh, month or so. You can read the columns uh, on the editorial page, uh, the op-ed page, and you can see that uh, almost everybody realizes that they can't be paid. All you have to do is look at the uh, premium for uh, default insurance for Greek bonds uh, to see that. So the question is, if Greece can't pay anyway, why are they even going through the charade? Well, the reason they're going through the charade is so that the commercial banks can then sell all of the bonds that they do have. They can be reimbursed and sell the bonds to their own commercial banks and the suckers. They're letting the people who now are holding uh, the bag take the money and run. So uh, what they're doing is uh, saying, okay, the commercial banks can sell out to the IMF and the central bank, and now it's much harder to default on an intergovernmental debt uh, if it's the government of Europe against the government of Greece than it is for the commercial banks. And uh, again, the Greeks can say, well, we know the game that you're playing. You are the people that lent the money to us to pay the bank. We didn't get a penny of it. You, in effect, paid your own banks. This is your problem. Uh, we're not going to pay you. You don't like it? Kick us out. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Guns, Finance, and Butter. Finance is the new mode of warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How is the European Central Bank different from central banks of other countries? Very important question. Central banks from the Bank of England in uh, 1694 to the Federal Reserve in 1913 were funded and created to finance the government deficit. Uh, the idea was that government spending would be fueled by banks uh, just creating on their typewriters or their printing press or now on their computer keyboard, they would create money. What we know is money is created on computer keyboards, whether commercial banks do it or central banks do. Uh, but the European Central Bank is different from all other central banks. They are not allowed to fund government operations. They're not allowed to do this. The whole idea behind the creators of the European Central Bank is that uh, governments have to pay commercial banks to do what they could really do for themselves for nothing. They let commercial banks use their computer keyboard to create hundreds of billions of dollars worth of IOUs that bear interest, whereas the central bank has its own computer keyboard. It could create this credit just as well. Uh, but the European Central Bank doesn't do this. So the European Central Bank is, from the outset, a creature of bank lobbyists who say, we want the business of making interest in financial fees off the privilege of alone being able to create uh, the public utility of money. You can think of money as a public utility just like uh, electricity or water. And in America, uh, public utilities, uh, Con Ed here in New York, uh, electric companies elsewhere, all are regulated to keep their prices in line with the cost of producing the uh, gas and electricity that they sell the customers. Well, uh, money is 
of that kind of privilege, except you can create any amount of money simply on a computer keyboard if you're a bank and can find a customer, in this case the government customer, but you can find almost any customer, uh, especially in your own affiliates now that you've got rid of Glass-Steagall, uh, the banks can in effect create an infinite amount of money freely and uh, create as much interest as they can find borrowers uh, willing to pay. Uh, the European Central Bank gives them a free reign to do this and essentially has privatized the public utility of credit creation. I see. So what you're saying is that in Europe, it's only the private banks that can create credit, not the, uh, that, not the central bank. That's right. And they're prevented specifically from funding the government debt, which is what central banks are supposed to do. And Europe is not allowed to bail out uh, other governments. That's under the Lisbon Treaty. It's as if saying uh, Washington is not allowed to have revenue sharing with uh, the states and cities like uh, there is. For uh, the last uh, few decades, Washington has been sharing revenue with uh, the states and cities. That's what was keeping them uh, afloat until quite recently. But now all this is... Uh, this is all different from Europe, and of course, this just uh, is tearing Europe apart. There's no way that Europe can survive under the financial rules of the Lisbon Treaty that have tied its hands financially. So uh, one of the reasons the euro has gone down against the dollar, despite all of the dollar's problems you've talked about, it's the euro that's going down more than the dollar, because they realize that uh, the way in which the euro is created, the eurozone, is uh, unworkable. Right. So do you think then that either they're going to have to change the rules there or the European Union is going to break apart? Yes. European banks hold debt from faltering EU countries such as Greece, Ireland, Portugal, etc., but American banks have sold European banks credit default swaps. That is, American banks have insured European bank debt. How is this going to play out if European governments default on their debt? It complicates it very badly. Uh, in Ireland's case, uh, a month or so ago, for instance, uh, Europe apparently was all set to realize that uh, the Irish government made a terrible mistake in taking the bad bank debt, much of it crooked bank debt, onto the government balance sheet and making the taxpayers liable for all the bank's bad loans uh, that then were uh, financialized by the European governments. They were going to say, okay, we're going to write down the loans to the bondholders because there's a basic principle at work. A debt that can't be paid won't be. Well, all of a sudden, uh, it was rumored that uh, Tim Geithner, the U.S. Treasury Secretary, uh, told the Europeans, wait a minute, you can't make the banks take a loss because Wall Street has already taken a huge gamble on your horse race. We've uh, placed big bets that uh, these governments are going to pay. There won't be a debt write down, so you have to keep Irish labor on the hook. You have to keep the Irish taxpayer on the hook. You have to make Ireland pay. Same thing in Greece. Uh, it said that Geithner again told the Europeans the American banks have made a big gamble on Greece. The Greek people will be defeated, that the oligarchy will win, that the oligarchy will succeed in pushing them into depression, and you've got to. Uh, save American banks from losing on this gamble by destroying yourself. Destroy Greece, destroy yourself, because otherwise our banks would lose money and we're not willing to lose a dollar. We'd rather you lose a trillion dollars than us use one dollar, because I represent the American banks, not you. 
So one can say, shame on Mr. Obama for putting a Treasury Secretary that has such a dysfunctional, almost sociopathic uh, personality and psychology to be willing to do this. Europe's response is to say, who put Mr. Geithner in power over the European government impoverishing us? Who put the American Treasury in a position to demand that we go into depression? Uh, when I was in Norway, one of the Norwegian uh, uh, politicians sat next to me at a dinner and said, you know, uh, there's one good thing that President Obama has done that we never anticipated in Europe. He's shown the Europeans that we can never depend upon America again. There's no president, no matter how good he sounds, no matter what he promises, we're uh, never again going to believe the patter talk of an American president. Mr. Obama has cured us. He has turned out to be our nightmare. Uh, our problem is what to do about the American people that don't realize this nightmare that they've created, this uh, smooth-talking American Tony Blair in the White House. What is your assessment of the new head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde? She made her reputation as a corporate uh, lawyer uh, lobbying against labor unions and uh, working on how the corporations could uh, keep down labor, uh, worsen workplace uh, positions. She made her reputation fighting against labor. So she's in the right position. That's the IMF's, uh, what it's selling. The IMF's product is austerity. Uh, the IMF's product is poverty. She's the perfect person to impose poverty. Uh, she's anti-labor. She's opportunistic. Uh, she supports the banks. Uh, she supports the IMF philosophy. Uh, she's probably uh, the best person to lead the worst organization in the world. You describe a class war of banks against all the rest of society, which cuts across the notion of left or right in political terms. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? This is a, probably the hardest uh, issue to get across because finance really isn't uh, a class. Uh, surprisingly enough, the first discussion of this came in the 1970s and uh, 80s in uh, Russia. Uh, Stalin, uh, actually it was already in the 60s, Stalin had asked uh, leading Assyriologists and ancient historians to look at the class conflict in antiquity and especially into Oriental despotism. And uh, there were two people who uh, took the lead. One of them was Mohammed uh, Dandamayev, who wrote a, a good book uh, published by the University of Illinois Press on slavery in ancient Babylonia. And he said, finance really isn't a class because everybody's a creditor. Uh, in America, uh, employees save money. They have Social Security. Everybody is a creditor to somebody, as well as being a debtor, and the financial classes are debtors. So it's not really a class. He said it's a legal estate. And if you look at all of the discussions in the 19th century uh, about class uh, warfare, it was always, uh, what was the class? The class was the owner of capital or uh, the people that they hired. It was labor and industrial capital. Those were the two classes. There was also a landowning class of rentiers, but nobody ever thought of finance as being a class of people. Uh, bankers were supposed to be intermediaries. Uh, they were supposed to provide credit for the wheels of commerce, but uh, most people uh, thought of wealth as being land or uh, stock ownership or uh, securities. They didn't think of finance as being a class. So I used the term very loosely, not in the classical meaning of the word class, but there's a financial dynamic 
of compound interest, uh, financial dynamic of uh, banks and the financial sector getting the rest of society into debt that now can be created on a computer keyboard without limit, and then essentially uh, getting rich by pushing the rest of society into debt up to the point where the entire economic surplus is being used not to raise living standards, not to invest in tangible industrial capital formation, uh, not to pay taxes to government, but to uh, pay interest and financial fees to the financial sector. So uh, I guess instead of a class, I should refer to what national income economists call the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate. And it's a symbiotic sector that's emerged to become the characteristic uh, central planners uh, of the economy. A uh, hundred years ago, people thought, well, uh, right now we have the big corporations, uh, heavy industry, the steel companies, uh, the railroads doing the planning. We think government should be uh, doing the planning. Uh, that was a socialist position. But now you don't have government doing the planning. You don't have industry doing planning. You have Wall Street and the financial sector doing the planning. Nobody a hundred years ago expected anything like this. So you have essentially uh, a new class a new bureaucracy, not uh, the bureaucracy that uh, Hayek warned about in the road to serfdom doing the planning, but a much more centralized planning bureaucracy on Wall Street in America, the city of London uh, in England, uh, the Bourse in France, uh, Frankfurt in Germany, uh, Shanghai in China. You have financial interests that are somehow centralizing all of the planning power and all of the economic surplus in their own hands in a way that's impoverishing the rest of society. This is something entirely new, and the political system has not come to terms with it. You said that when you're devaluing the price of the currency, that what you're devaluing really is the price of labor. Could you elaborate? Uh, when... All countries have common prices for fuels, raw materials, machinery, and hard currency credit. So when a currency goes up and down, the actual uh, global price of all of these basic inputs, uh, raw materials, remains the same. What are affected are domestic prices and costs, and these are mainly labor and real estate. For instance, uh, let's look back in the 1980s when the United States was pushing Japan to increase uh, the value of the yen. Uh, the yen went up in price against the dollar, but uh, the Japanese paid exactly the same global rate for their oil and iron and steel and copper and raw materials. Uh, and the only thing that really went up was Japanese labor costs. Similarly, if the United States dollar goes down to make more exports, America is still going to have to pay the same price that other countries pay for its uh, fuels and raw materials and equipment. And what will become uh, less expensive will be the price of labor, uh, which will be worth less in terms of uh, euros or uh, other hard, harder currencies. So uh, devaluation basically is a means of lowering labor. In Greece, for instance, if Greece were to leave the eurozone and adopt the drachma and devalue, uh, its foreign debts are in hard currency, so it would have to pay more in drachma 
to pay its uh, euro debts and dollar debts and uh, other foreign currency debts. Um, it would have to continue to pay world prices for all of its uh, basic inputs, but uh, Greek labor would be devalued relative to foreign currency. So the idea is to lower uh, the cost of labor on the theory that it's labor costs that determine international prices. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Guns, Finance, and Butter. Finance is the new mode of warfare. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So then you're saying that with a dollar devaluing, American labor actually earn less. They have less buying power. In global terms, they have less buying power. If the dollar goes down uh, and prices are set globally for machinery and imports, and the cost of what America imports is going to go up. Uh, the cost of what it imports in China, for instance, will uh, go up, and Walmart will have to charge uh, people higher prices. Uh, the cost of its fuels and uh, metal uh, is going to go up. So the effect will be to squeeze the budget of employees and to raise the economy's domestic cost structure uh, faster than uh, wages respond by rising. The idea of devaluing the dollar is to raise the cost of living and not raise wages so that you increase the rate of exploitation of labor. Yes, that makes a lot of sense, particularly in view of the fact that most of the things that people buy these days are imported. Uh, that's right. Uh, as America is deindustrialized, uh, it's shifted production abroad and it's had to import uh, more and more of its essentials. Its exports are primarily uh, food, and uh, now it's trying to raise the price of world grain by using corn and other crops for uh, a gasohol uh, to drive down the price of oil, and it's created an artificial world food surplus. Uh, the aim of the government today is what it was under the Carter administration, to create a food crisis to starve out uh, third world countries and make them more dependent on the United States. So the United States government can say, uh, we will give you uh, more food, but you have to uh, sell off your raw materials to American firms. and You have to get rid of your democracy and put in a government that uh, we appoint. Uh, so that uh, we can have uh, Hillary Clinton in charge of your policy uh, instead of your own people. And uh, that's how the Americans basically are uh, impoverishing uh, the third world countries by insisting, for instance, through the World Bank and IMF, that they will only give loans if other countries uh, do not feed themselves and depend on American uh, grain. Now that America is using the grain to make alcohol uh, and gasoline, there's no more grain available to feed these people. So the result is African starvation as official American policy. So you're saying that the United States uses the World Bank and the IMF to force other countries to import our agriculture. That's been the explicit aim, and I've uh, described that in my book, Super Imperialism, how the main uh, mainstay of the U.S. balance of payments uh, for the last 50 years has been agriculture, not industry. And uh, in addition to agriculture, of course, military exports to the oil exporting countries, uh, so that they, they're permitted to charge as much as they want 
for their oil as long as they agree to spend it on buying American airplanes. Uh, Saudi Arabia is now buying tanks to use against its uh, population. Uh, the idea is to arm the countries uh, to prevent their domestic populations from uh, bringing about a democratic government. That's what's creating the Arab Spring and the reaction against the governments, wasting their economic surplus on buying American arms uh, and agreeing uh, not to promote agriculture but uh, to buy American food to essentially finance dependency on the United States. That's the role of the World Bank and IMF, to make other countries dependent on the United States. Right, and the, the way that they affect that is to put the other countries in debt. That's right, and not only in debt, but in uh, food dependency on the United States, so that at uh, the stroke of a foreign policy, uh, Hillary Clinton can say, you're not on our approved list, we are going to starve your population until you agree to follow American policy and sell off your... Uh, public domain to more American companies. So this is why I said that finance is the new mode of uh, warfare. Finance uh, and food dependency achieve today what military invasion was required to achieve uh, in centuries past. Now, Dr. Uh, Hudson, just to clarify, how is it that the United States can force other countries to not be self-sufficient in their agriculture? How are they forced to not grow their own crops? Uh, there were proposals in the 1950s uh, that uh, the United Nations and the United States should promote land reform. And uh, I'm told that David Rockefeller at Chase Manhattan gave John Deaver, the economic research director and my former boss, uh, a copy of the Forgash Plan uh, for a World Bank for Economic Acceleration to promote uh, land reform. And uh, John Deaver uh, said that in every country that has undertaken land reform, uh, to grow their own crops, there's been an anti-American feeling. Well, an anti-American feeling because American foreign policy is dictated very largely by the agribusiness interests in the United States. Uh, the large grain dealers, uh, the, the mainstay of the U.S. balance of payments, is food exporting, which means, uh, finds its counterpart in foreign economic uh, and food dependency on the United States. So this is the most constant... Uh, element of U.S. foreign policy since World War II, uh, food dependency. And uh, if other countries need money to develop, if the United States can, uh, in effect, uh, have its banks raid these countries, creating a foreign exchange crisis, countries will have a choice. Either they can withdraw from the uh, uh, world trade and financial system and go their own way, or uh, they can join, but the price of joining, the price of being a member is they have to agree to uh, not to protect their own agriculture, but to build in a special favoritism to U.S. Uh, agriculture. Uh, my book, Super Imperialism, explains how this is done uh, in the trade field uh, and in the financial field. I've always been a little mystified as to why everyone joins the IMF and the World Bank, why they don't go it alone. The question you're asking is, who are they? Who, who is Argentina? Who is Brazil? Uh, it's not as if the whole country makes this decision. Uh, these countries are very largely uh, their own oligarchies. For instance, uh, when 
I started uh, the Third World uh, Bond Fund for Scudder Stevens in 1990. Uh, Brazilian and Argentine bonds were yielding 45% interest. Nobody would buy uh, these bonds in America. Scudder was unable to sell uh, shares in the funds to uh, American buyers or to European buyers. The buyers were uh, wealthy families in Brazil and Argentina uh, because they knew that they were going to pay the debt. So uh, the dollar debt uh, the Yankee imperialists that were uh, being blamed were actually Argentinian and uh, Brazilian uh, oligarchs uh, operating through offshore funds uh, with dollars that they'd uh, uh, siphoned out of their own country. So if you have a country that's run like Saudi Arabia is run or other dictatorships, uh, a client dictatorship run by a client oligarchy is kept in place by essentially the U.S. Uh, diplomacy against the domestic democracy. That's why America backed dictators in uh, Latin America for 50 years after World War II. And President Johnson said, well, they may be bastards, but they're our bastards. So the interest of the oligarchy is basically to uh, make their economies dependent offshore uh, because the oligarchs uh, have their money outside of these countries. There's a massive capital flight there, and the more their currency goes down, the more their currency becomes dependent. The more they have to borrow uh, dollars, the more they borrow from their own domestic oligarchy, and the higher the value this oligarchy that has its money abroad uh, has vis-a-vis -vis its own domestic uh, economy. So the interest of the rentier oligarchy that's floating on top of the economy uh, is, Werner Sombart said, like uh, globules of fat on the, uh, on the soup of uh, the economy. They benefit from this, while the economy as a whole suffers. This is the problem with uh, neoliberal reform. It's created oligarchies throughout the former Soviet countries. We can see this from the Baltics to uh, Central Asia and what's happened there. We can see it in Latin America. We can see in uh, what the U.S. and uh, Europe have been promoting in the Near East, from Saudi Arabia and other countries. The interest of Saudi Arabia and Bahrain is not that of their citizens. It's the interest of uh, the rulers on top of these economies. You have written that the bailout of Greek sovereign debt amounts to financial warfare. That is the selling off of the Greek islands, the Athens airport, etc. How is this stripping of Greek assets accomplished? Uh, essentially, the uh, European Central Bank and the IMF tell Greece, look, uh, you have to run a budget uh, surplus or minimize your deficit in order to meet the criteria that uh, the Eurozone members meet. So uh, you're going to have to balance the budget, not by taxing the rich, that's our constituency, but by selling off uh, your airports and your public domain and counting this as a budget inflow. So you balance your budget, not by progressive taxation, which is how America and Western Europe got rich, but by selling off the public domain to foreigners mainly. Uh, and the idea is that uh, you're going to get rich by selling it off because these uh, new buyers are going to operate uh, the water and airports and other things more efficiently and lower your prices. Well, of course, this is pure mythology. Uh, when you privatize a basic infrastructure, uh, it's privatized on credit, and so 
the new owners filled in their interest charges and financial charges into the cost of doing business. They pay themselves enormous salaries, uh, much higher than uh, the public sector would pay. And uh, they begin to uh, treat their monopoly position as if they can put a toll booth on the roads, a toll booth on the water and sewer, a toll booth anywhere. And if the governments don't have a price regulating system in place to uh, treat these uh, infrastructure investments like public utilities and keep their prices in line with the necessary costs of uh, production, then you're going to turn the whole economy into uh, what economists call rent extraction. Uh, predatory uh, monopoly charges, uh, just like rent racking, except on the scale of uh, the uh, water, sewer, the broadcasting spectrum, telephones, uh, and you have the economy ending up looking like Mexico, where they privatized uh, the telephones, and uh, Carlos Slim became the owner and became the wealthiest person in the world by making Mexico pay the highest uh, prices for using telephones and the uh, uh, communication spectrum of any country in the world. That's the neoliberal model, saying, Greece, you can get rich by letting the Carlos Slims of the world come in and uh, take your economy. Uh, and we're not going to do this by an army. We're not going to land paratroopers. We're going to just uh, give a political contribution to your socialist uh, party members uh, to vote to give all of this away. We're going to do it financially without any bloodshed. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. Thank you, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been Guns, Finance, and Butter. Finance is the new mode of warfare. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super-Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade Development and Foreign Debt and Global Fracture, the New International Economic Order, among many others. Dr. Hudson has been a consultant to foreign governments, including Canada, Mexico, and Russia. Visit his website at www.michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's b-l-f-a-u-l-k-n-e-r at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand 
Trying to steal your life.